0: Welcome, everyone, to Big Episode Nine of UConn Three Hundred and Sixty. It's the world's favorite podcast. Ooh, we've
1: been upgraded. We're from upgraded. Only leading favorite. Now it's the world's
0: favorite podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, tell a friend. Along those lines, I want to give a special shout out to Stephen Winchell, class of two thousand eight who is a writer and cartoonist who draws the comic Natty, who has said nice things about us, on the website Twitter.com.
1: Thank you, Stephen.
0: Thank you, Stephen. It's nice to be noticed.
1: What did he say about us?
0: He said he really enjoys the show. Oh. Speaking of the show, the people who make it happen are here with me, Julie Bartuka. Hey. Ken Best. I am here. And I'm Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Uh, why don't we get right into it? We have a lot of exciting news and exciting stories today. So why don't we start off with some husky headlines Ken, what's happening?
2: Dennis Pierce is the
0: person who's in charge of our food service here. Now, if if, if you
2: went to college many years ago, food was not that great in college. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it, there wasn't a lot of variety. Fair. However, Fair. suffice to say here at UConn, you have many options. People know where they want to get their pizza, where they want to get uh, their, their breakfast, their lunches, their uh, snacks. We have... Several dining halls, all specializing in different things. Eight of them. Eight of them, as a matter of fact. Uh, And Dennis was recognized for the second time with a national award recently. Uh, He was one of those to receive a silver plate award from the International Food Service Manufacturers Association. He got the award for the top choice in colleges and universities. It's the second time he was honored. Uh, Two years ago, he was honored by the National Association of College and University Food Service uh, with the Theodore Mina Distinguished Service Award, it's a top award in that in that field. If you eat on campus as as, as I do, and I think you it's guys so you do, yes, uh, there's just you, there's never a problem finding. I something ate mashed
1: potatoes and stuffing every single day of my junior year, <laughs> and I loved it.
2: Uh, but more, more than that, Dennis is yes the leader of the the, the program, but he always credits. The staff, because we have a very hardworking group of folks who are here during closings because the the students uh, need to have food, even though it's snowing outside. (laughs) And also, uh, this year, UConn Dining Services won the Gold Award for the Best Vegan Recipe Mm. in the uh, big award by the uh, National Association of College and University Food Service, the Deconstructed Meatball Banh Mi with Sriracha Mayo Drizzle.
3: Delicious
2: which is basically a meatball that's not made out of meat.
0: Cruelty-free meatball. <laughs> I,
2: haven't, I haven't had that yet. I have
1: to go
2: up the towers just up the street from where we work to see if I can find it.
0: Well, congratulations, Dennis. Dennis is a great guy. I've had a chance to work with him a few times, and everyone in dining services is pretty great. Speaking of great stuff, Julie, what's happening in Yukon?
1: <laughs> in yukon <that's>, hey, <laughs> hey that's vague um this is actually a really touching awesome story the family of alex schachter a 14 year old who was tragically killed in the Marjorie stoneman douglas high school shooting in parkland florida has established the alex schachter and family memorial scholarship here at yukon alex's late mom debbie goldberg schachter was a 1993 alum or 1993 graduate sorry and his family says he practically lived in a yukon sweatshirt his aunt and uncle brought him here when he was five to visit and he dreamed of being a husky one day and playing in the marching band Uh, the undergraduate admissions office actually sent alex's family an acceptance letter making him an honorary husky after his tragic passing and the marching band and pep band have designated the young trombone player a full member of the bands they wore pins emblazoned with his name at all their performances this spring hung a photo of him in the practice room and left an empty chair in the trombone section during rehearsals. so really sweet. Alex really is a Husky forever. Um, and now there's a scholarship that will help future marching band members attend UConn. And if you want to donate to that, you can visit foundation.uconn.edu.
0: That is a great story. As for me, some exciting news. Uh, as many of you know, in fall 2017, we added student housing in Stanford for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it has been so popular that the board of trustees uh, voted this month to pursue some short-term leases to add more student housing wow! because we got way more deposits than we expected. It's become a very popular option. In fact, our applications to the Stanford campus are up 23% over the previous year.
1: Awesome. It's a beautiful campus. It is. And the housing
0: housing is great. Right Um, downtown. Don't worry. Fiscal hawks out there. Uh, (laughs) The cost of these short-term leases will be more than offset by the operating surplus at our long-term student residents in Stanford, uh, as well as the increase in tuition from the new students. You know, the housing at Stanford has been so popular, you could almost say the decision to build it there was elementary. <laughs> and with that perfectly natural and not at all forced segue... That leads me to our first piece of this episode, courtesy of Ken Best. Ken, there's a professor at UConn Avery Point uh, who has a great amount of expertise on the world's most famous detective. Tell us more.
2: Pamela Bedore is an associate professor of English and the writing coordinator at uh, the Avery Point campus, where she teaches uh, classes in a variety of subjects, including popular fiction. Uh, But she specializes in researching detective fiction, including uh, the book that she wrote a couple of years ago dime novels, and the roots of American detective fiction. The sixth season of Elementary, which is what Tom was referring to, mm. the modern Sherlock Holmes series, uh, and there's a forthcoming Ethan Cohen comedy, Holmes and Watson, with Will Ferrell as Holmes and John C. Riley as oh, Watson. That'll be good. Coming up at the end of the year. So I went down to Avery Point. It was a hardship trip to go to the coast. <laughs> Beautiful campus. Here. And... Uh, spent some time with Professor Bidor, uh, who I've uh, known for a number of years, and she's she's great to talk with.
3: First of all, you have to think about what is, what is the popularity of a detective in general? And there's sort of two basic schools of thought on that. One is that we're very interested in crime, and you can see this when you look at the television um, television schedule and see how many shows out there are about crime, and we're interested in subversion when someone commits an act that breaks the rules, that breaks the laws, and we're interested in the detective figure who comes around and fixes it, who solves it, but the other idea is that detective fiction is epistemological. It's about how do we know stuff.
2: That's your favorite word.
3: I love the word epistemological, as my students will tell you. And, um, and yeah, and I feel like Sherlock Holmes represents rationality. And when we're thinking about how do we know what we know, we can go from supernatural to the rational. And even in Doyle's initial stories, he does that. He presents stories like The Sussex Vampire, Hound of the Baskervilles, in which it looks like there's a mystery that's supernatural. And then Sherlock Holmes comes in and tells you, no, 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 we can explain everything.
2: He is classified as an armchair detective, which was one of the early forms of detective that you identified in your book, uh, Dime Novels uh, and the Roots of American detective fiction, Mm -hmm. you were surprised to see such familiarity in the detective form in the story form as we found in the 20th century. Why did that surprise you so much?
3: Well, so it's really interesting because our narrative of detective fiction tends to start with we've got Poe in the 1840s, And then we've got Sherlock Holmes in 1887. For a long time, we didn't pay much attention to the detective fiction in between those two. And then we say, okay, so Sherlock Holmes, armchair detective, he's just sitting on his couch solving mysteries with the information, which isn't exactly accurate, to the stories. And then in the 20s, we get the hard-boiled detective in California. Sam Spade. Tough guy. Those guys. Exactly. Exactly. And then in the 50s, we get the police procedurals, we get McBain, we get Dragnet on the radio, television. And then in the 80s, 90s, we've got like much more diverse group of detectives.
2: Well, then we have the more reality-based uh, mm-hmm. NYPD Blue yes. and, and those types of uh,
3: Absolutely, which come shows. right out of the police procedurals right. of the 50s. But what I found when I was looking at detective fiction of the 1860s, 70s, 80s, in the dime novels, before you even get Sherlock Holmes... You've got all of those things. You've got police procedurals. You've got hard-boiled characters. You even have really diverse characters. And boy, you can imagine my surprise when I see an 1881 dime novel with a gay detective.
2: Highly unusual.
3: Totally unexpected.
2: Now, there is a connection to Connecticut with uh, William Gillette, who portrayed Sherlock Holmes in film and on stage. And then sort of after that, there was this roster of people. There have been 21 radio or audio versions of, of Sherlock Holmes, 37 stage productions, 40 films, wow. 27 TV or direct-to-TV films, mm-hmm. 30 television series, uh, and of course Basil <laughs> Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Watson in the 30s up to the early 50s, 16 films. Wow. That's, that's a lot.
3: <laughs> I knew it was a lot, but that's an impressive array. Yeah.
2: And if you go and, and look it up, the top one hundred mystery novels of all time from the mystery writers of America, the complete Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is is sitting at the top of the heap.
3: Absolutely. That does not surprise me in the slightest. And the um the Gillette connection is really interesting. William Gillette actually set a lot of the standards that we think about for Sherlock. The curved pipe that comes from Gillette rather than from the Conan Doyle stories. Ditto for even the phrase, elementary, my dear Watson, comes from the adaptations. And that's the thing about Sherlock, is he is so adaptable. It's interesting, because when I teach the Sherlock Holmes class, the kids come up with all these different readings of his popularity, and there are like 30 different reasons. Um, His relationship with his sidekick, his relationship with Watson, is certainly one of the reasons.
2: Well, we have two very contemporary uh, Sherlock's over the last decade or so there's the Benedict uh, Cumberbatch version yep. uh, which is kind of on hiatus right mm-hmm. now that's a BBC production and we have the elementary which is the Johnny Lee Miller Lucy Lou which is a complete twist with Watson being a, a woman rather yeah. than uh, a man but still being a physician
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, which is key to a lot of things with Sherlock Holmes Is that part of the adaptability? Because if you you look at these contemporary versions, of course, there's technology that Mm -hmm. didn't exist in the original, uh, although Sherlock was a forensic detective, so he sort of was breaking ground with that when Conan Doyle, who was a doctor himself, Mm -hmm. wrote those stories. So does it fit that well?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, so Sherlock, who was always writing monographs on forensic things like 18 kinds of cigarette ash or whatever. He was always um, using forensic techniques, early forensic techniques, but that are very, very easy to adapt. So when when you mentioned that Watson is a physician, that's really important. Watson knows a lot of stuff. Watson's adventurous. And it's funny how you say that Sherlock is the armchair detective, which is how he's often portrayed. But those two guys are out there at crime scenes and, Watson carries the pistol. They have all sorts of adventures that are really, really easy to adapt. Of course, today we have such an interest in the Victorian period. And the two ways to adapt are to bring Sherlock into the 21st century. And then you also get some film versions and probably some of the older TV versions that really double down on the Victorian piece of it.
2: Now you've done several pieces since your book came out about mm-hmm. fiction, about detective fiction, yep. and in, in other areas. Why is this still coming up consistently in study? Because you would think, with as much as been has been out there for so <laughs> many for so many years, we're talking about the uh, the late nineteenth century, and mm-hmm. we're into the twenty to- first century, <laughs> more than a hundred years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People are still looking at it. This uh, different, trying to, or trying to find things that are new.
3: Yeah, and very, very easily finding things that are new because here's the thing about genre fiction. And by genre fiction, I mean detective fiction, science fiction, fantasy, romance, all of these genres, which people love to read. They lo- we love the repetition of the genres, but the best examples both repeat and innovate, right? And so there's constantly people using. All of this sort of standard techniques, there's a body on page one. We as the reader are trying to figure out who did it. We get this intellectual engagement, this cognitive engagement. And then people have all these innovative ways of creating characters that are different or that are adaptations, but also creating different crime techniques, different relationships. We love genre fiction. And I, I do not anticipate a day when we say, that's it. We have fully understood the appeal of detective fiction or even the appeal of Sherlock Holmes because we're constantly creating new products.
2: And if we go back to the origins of these, these uh, uh, books and, and, and short stories, in one of your pieces, you wrote about the effect on the publishing industry with non traditional working class readers and, and what they were interested in reading. How does that still fit in?
3: Well, I think it absolutely still fits in, in the sense of with the dime novels, dime novels are the first, you know, 10-cent books that are available. Well, they cost between 5 cents and 25. They were not all one dime. But they were really available to working-class readers. And they told stories of working-class life, of everyday life, that people could really understand and get behind and feel connected to. And they had working-class heroes. And I feel like with Sherlock Holmes, it's interesting Sherlock Holmes is a funny character. Almost every adaptation plays up the humor of his single-mindedness. And his quirks. And his quirks, exactly. He's a very eccentric character. But we as a reader, we often end up identifying more with Watson, who's just an everyday guy who's looking at his friend and thinking, wow, that guy's so smart and so crazy at the same time. He's trying to cope with him. And that's what I really like about Elementary, is that I feel like the Lucy Lou character, the way that they've written that show, she actually, more than other Watsons, deals with his illness. You know, she deals with his addiction. There are a lot of jokes in that show. It's a very funny show in a lot of ways, but it's also a very serious show. To be who he is, Sherlock Holmes is also somewhat tortured. And that makes a lot of sense.
2: So now we're in the 21st century mm-hmm. firmly, and we still have Sherlock Holmes, but yep. we also have uh, Law and Order reruns, and we have <laughs> uh, Blue Bloods, and yep. still uh, NCIS, mm-hmm. and whatever else is coming down the pike. Uh, where do you see that this format, this genre, may be going given the ever present shadow? Of uh, the guy in the <laughs> in the, the deerstalker cap.
3: My next project is actually on mother detectives. The major um, movement of female detectives starts in the 70s. But since the late 90s, many of the women detectives in series as well as um, in book series as well as TV series.
2: But we're, we're talking post-Nancy Drew.
3: Oh, yes. <laughs> Nancy <laughs> Drew from the 30s, <laughs> in 1930s. I'm really interested in this new movement of mother detectives who are working within this man's world of detective fiction, which is much more diverse than it used to be, and also juggling with the pragmatics of like of parenthood and being a primary caregiver, but also working with the epistemological framework of detective fiction. My argument is that when you have a child, the way you know things changes radically because you now have a sense of lifespan that goes beyond your own lifespan you now think of your child's lifespan in a different way you think of the future in a different way and detective fiction is all about the past the way that the genre is organized you start with a crime and you try to figure out what happened what is the story that led up to the crime that I am beginning with parenthood is all about the future What happens next to my child? And I feel like there's this really complicated, but obviously cognitively pleasurable moment since we're getting the repetition of these women detectives who are also mothers. That's a little different from the daddy detectives that we see. We also get, again, the collapsing of roles. Um, I'm referencing a slightly older series, but something like Dexter. Dexter is a detective, he's a forensic scientist. And he's a serial killer. And he's a dad. And so that is a very complicated identity that creates for the reader, we want Dexter to get away with it. What does that make us? We love the moments where he, as a detective, is working with this other group of detectives. We already saw him committing the crime he's trying to solve. And that's a very pleasurable moment. So... It's complicated. We're going towards very, very complicated roles and sliding roles, in my opinion.
4: Elementum, my dear Watson.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you for that, Ken. Uh, And you know, when I said that Sherlock Holmes is the world's most famous detective, I was not whistling Dixie. I don't think I've ever whistled Dixie. According to the BBC, uh, Conan Doyle's stories have been translated into at least 99 languages, which is yet <gasps> another incredibly Flawless. natural segue Flawless. to our next piece. Julie, he is on his game today. He really is. Let's talk it. translation, or sure the game Let's is afoot, as they say.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I spoke with a super interesting professor here named Peter Constantine, who's the director of the literary literary translation program here, which started two years ago. They offer undergraduate and grad programs, and they're actually establishing a major, a minor, and a grad certificate. And student work has been honored by prestigious awards from the Penn American Center, among others, and Constantine He's um, won many translation awards himself. He heads up a few presses here at Yukon, including new poetry and translation and world poetry books. Peter came to the US in 1984 to study modern dance, actually. But he told me his passion for literature quickly eclipsed his love for dance. And um, he has a very interesting background, which he talked a little bit about. He speaks many languages and talks about his relationship with many languages, which was fascinating to me because I hardly speak one language. (laughs) And this topic was really not something I'd thought about before I met him, but it's pretty impressive that we're doing this work here at UConn. So let's get into it. So where does literary translation fit into today's world? Today's society, how does it
4: fit in? Well, translation is is a a booming international market in the globalization trend Mm -hmm. in international business. So there is that aspect. And then there's a cultural uh, side of things. In other words, where uh, literary fields and uh, literary markets are being opened up. So we are interested in what is being written in China. We are interested in what is being written all over the world, in Iran, in in Russia. So th- this is something that uh, that I, I see a growing trend in, in, in translation of literature. So this is something that we are, are working on here too. And we have students uh, who have been translating from Bosnian, from uh, Haitian Creole, from Serbian, Russian, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and the list goes on.
1: And you mentioned a few of them have been recognized for their work?
4: Yes, uh, the undergraduate Emily Soha, for instance, in May, uh, has a, uh, a big spread in world literature today. Uh, she's translated a, a young Spanish poet uh, from Spain, Juan Bello Sanchez, probably pronounced Juan Bello Sanchez. So that is something that is quite unusual. I think she's probably the first undergraduate to publish in this major international uh, peer-reviewed literary magazine. So that that is, I think, a major first. Uh, we've also had graduate students publish there. Uh, Pauline Levy valenci discovered a uh, young French poet whose name is Perrin Langda, and um, she also published a series of of his poems in, um, in fact, in in World Literature Today. Brian Sneeden, who was a graduate student. Uh, Translates from the modern Greek. Uh, he's published poems by Phoebe Yanisi in that magazine. I will also say that I have a press called World Poetry Books, and uh, we're doing a series of books, of which um, Brian Sneedon's Homerica was chosen as one of the, uh, the, the best books of 2017 by uh, Anne Carson, who's one of the major poets in the world.
1: What value, what do we get out of it when we translate these works from other languages?
4: Well, we open up our horizons. We, we have an amazing literature here in America, but there is also an amazing literature in France. There's an amazing literature in Bosnia, in Greece, to name a few countries. So uh, translation does open up the windows and the doors to the world.
1: How do you teach translation when people are doing this in, for many different languages? You're not teaching a language, you're teaching...
4: Yeah, so that's it. We're not teaching the language, but we're we're teaching the transfer, like how to recreate uh, pieces in English. So English is, is the main focus. Uh, what we do is we have two types of students. I say students with two, with two kinds of, uh, of, of strength. We have mother tongue speakers. So let's say I, I might have some students who are Chinese whose strong language is Chinese. They, they know their Chinese. They know the Chinese literature. There's absolutely no question about what the original text is. So for them, their English is good, but it's not a mother tongue English so there we work on on how do you recreate what the original has then we have students who have English as a, as a very strong language who are remarkable stylists and remarkable writers in English and who uh, either let's say I can give some examples like might have Russian Polish or Bosnian as a heritage language and they know the language well but English is stronger so there, we figure out like how to get extra help, you know, when it comes to certain nuance in Russian or in Bosnian that that might not be understood. You
1: mentioned nuance, and I was thinking about that before you said it. It's it's not just a direct you know you're not putting into Google Translate and saying here's what this word means. It's it's getting the intent across. I imagine that is the big challenge and the, the struggle that you guys might encounter when you're doing this work.
4: Uh, yes. And, and I think there's a new direction, a new idea in translation, which is that we're very interested in the end product. And we're not necessarily strict or we don't have strict guidelines as how you get there.
1: What's your favorite translation that you've done? I know you've done dozens and dozens and dozens of Works. I saw a lot of Chekhov, and I
4: really yes, I really enjoyed Anton Chekhov. I think he's a major stylist, uh, very innovative. If you think of those pieces that um, I translated the short stories that were unknown at the time, because he he did have an incredible amount of energy. He wrote over seven hundred stories, and he had a very short life. And some of the stories are, are you think about it? It's 1880 that he's writing them, and they're stories written in the form of a census report, for instance, or a, a, a love letter by a lawyer that is done like a deposition, you know, with a stamp on it.
1: <laughs> so- Creative.
4: Very creative, and you'd, you'd imagine people would be doing that in the, in the 1920s and 1930s, so he was doing that 40, 50 years before anyone else was. I like that, and the fact that they're very humorous and, and interesting and and just creative. And he'd once said, uh, give me an ashtray and I'll write a story about it and you really feel that 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 puts pen to paper and can actually just write and write something brilliant in a in one draft
1: tell us about your upbringing you were raised in greece
4: oh uh, yes. Yeah, so my my father was english of turkish background but i was raised in greece my mother was austrian so we spoke german english greek at home so that, that was the beginning i went back to England when I was 11 for a few years, but then returned to Greece. And in Greece, I went to a school that that had a very very international curriculum. In fact, the idea of the school was to provide a a British or an American education, so you could do your SATs or you could do your your GCEO levels and A levels. However, the courses were also directed toward, let's say, students whose parents were foreign diplomats. So uh, we had a very, very strong Russian department for all the East Bloc uh, students, as, as it was back then in the Soviet, because this was in the, in the 70s and early 80s. Also Vietnamese, uh, Afrikaans. So Afrikaans was something I was interested in, in fact, and, and they had Afrikaans classes. That's a, a, a language of South Africa, which mm-hmm. is of, of Germanic background, but, but mixed in with, with local Khoisan languages. So it's a, it's a fascinating language to me. Um, And in fact, I'm I'm doing some work on on Afrikaans translation and self translation right now. So it's it's something I'm thinking about. And um, the the headmaster wanted me to do an exclusively Vietnamese education. In fact, (laughs) Mr. Myers was his name. He was a man of of great vision. (laughs) I resisted that. So I I chose Russian. But I often wonder, I think to myself, what would have happened if I'd said yes, because then that would have meant all my classes would have been in Vietnamese.
1: Wow. And how many languages do you speak now?
4: Well, it's hard to count languages because it depends. I mean, German is my mother tongue per se, but then in Greece, that's the language I grew up in. English is a language that I've always worked in. So so there's slight differences there. Russian is a language that I've, I've translated most from. I did uh, the essential Rousseau for Random House Modern Library. So French was something that I was very, very dedicated to. But for instance, French is a language that I, I don't usually speak, but okay. I read a lot. So it's hard to actually evaluate to count up languages interesting yeah so one has different relationships with different languages also in greece i should say that uh, you know we have some autochthonous languages and that means let's say languages that are only spoken in an area but uh, my my stepfather's family in in greece they are aberisht speakers or were because it's a language that's almost dead like we're the last generation (laughs) that can speak it so that's another language that i have a very unusual relationship with because it's a language I can't really talk to anyone anymore since my uncle who was the last real fluent speaker in the village died but uh, it's a language I'm working with because he left a lot of of written work Uh, even though it didn't have an alphabet or wasn't a written language but he invented an alphabet and and wrote poetry and, and a biography and autobiography in fact things have been published translations of that because it is a very powerful voice that he uh, that he had.
1: So you can you can kind of keep that dead language alive through working with it I would imagine. I spent
4: years recording him so uh, and we have the only recordings of that language wow. so We should put that somewhere safe. Yes, (laughs) maybe in in the the archives. Yeah, Yeah, we should put it here in the library so we can have it forever and ever.
1: (laughs) That's great.
0: Uh, Well, that was excellent. Uh, Thank you very much for that. Thank you. Uh, All right. Well, now it's time to take uh, our customary trip down the dusty lanes of yesteryear and visit Tom's History Corner. Name subject to change. We Uh, haven't
1: gotten any suggestions. We
0: haven't gotten any Yeah.
1: You guys are not pulling your weight.
0: The people who are complaining out there about the name are not doing much to get it changed. I'm just going to say that. (laughs) Uh, This week, I wanted to follow up on something we talked about amongst ourselves last week, but which we had to cut uh, for time reasons. So Yukon is synonymous with that noble animal, the husky dog. But this wasn't always the case. And it was still a disputed identification well within living memory. When Homer Babbage was president, he wanted to change the name of the school's mascot because he thought it was stupid that it was basically based on a pun. You know, Yukon, uh, Yukon. He thought it was stupid. thought it was stupid.
1: Can I share a really quick funny story yeah, that you can absolutely. cut if you want to? <laughs> I was at a birthday party for my friend this weekend. And a friend who I had met previously, I can't remember who, what school she went to, but we had had a few... Beverages. And she said, Isn't that your school mascot the gray dog? <laughs> and I was like, What are you even talking the about? The gray dog? The gray dog. So she was firmly convinced that Yukon had a gray dog, the whatever U- that might be. we were called the Yukon gray dogs? I do wow. They're okay. all the gray hounds of
0: Springfield, yep. as I nope, recall. No, gray dog. Gray and then, dog. then I showed
1: her a picture of our beautiful Jonathan 14, and she said, Yep, that's a gray dog.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, Homer, <laughs> didn't, Homer didn't want to call us the gray dogs. No. He was a historian by training, and he wanted a historically appropriate, like UMass has the Minutemen, for example.
1: Boring. So he
0: actually wanted uh, our teams to be called the University of Connecticut Yankees. That already already was a kind of a well-known name in the world of sports in the 1960s.
1: Isn't that as much of a pun?
2: But I recall the mascot that was kind of dressed as a Minuteman with a rifle. Right, and that was part
0: of Homer's attempt to transition people gradually into accepting a colonial themed oh mascot, gosh. he also changed the name of our house uh, style of abbreviating University of Connecticut, which of course everyone knows as UConn. He changed that to U of C because he wanted people to stop thinking about UConn as like the pun. And in fact, in nineteen seventy, the members of the marching band were actually told next season we're changing the mascot, so get ready. But that never never happened. I like to think that uh, common sense prevailed, uh, and Jonathan has remained our official good boy ever since. But that wasn't always the case. It's pretty well known. That the Husky mascot was chosen in 1934 in a contest held by the student newspaper, the Connecticut campus, which in those days was a weekly. But our institution was founded in 1881. So uh, what the heck were we called for the 53 <laughs> years before Jonathan's arrival? Well, the main name we had was the Aggies, which uh, if you're a fan of college sports, you probably immediately think of Texas A&M. But recall that our first name in 1881 was Store's Agricultural School. Followed in 1893 by Storrs Agricultural College and then in 1899 by Connecticut Agricultural College, a name that remained until 1933 when we became Connecticut State College, six years after that we finally became a university. So with all those names, and with the school's focus on agriculture, you can understand why we are the Aggies. But what does that mean in terms of an actual live mascot? Like what's an Aggie? Right. When you think of an Aggie. What do you think? Well, it's sort of hard to say. For at least part of the time we were called the Aggies, our unofficial mascot was a black stallion named Dragon who lived in one of the stables. What is
1: the connection on Horse- there? I don't know.
0: But they had a big Sounds black... Sounds beautiful, sta- though. Yeah, I mean, it, and Dragon's a cool name. <laughs> uh, so, but in 1933, when the name changed to Connecticut State College, we couldn't be the Aggies anymore because there was no more agriculture in our names. So it was out with the Ag and in with the awkward attempt to find a new nickname. Sports writers started calling our teams the Connecticut Statesmen. Mm. Which in addition to not being gender inclusive uh, is also an incredibly lame mascot. Can you imagine like this? What would the statesman? Who would take the field? It's like somebody in a suit, like a committee chairman?
1: I feel that this is still a problem that persists in sports.
0: Bring back Dragon. Dragon. Oh, oh. There was also one other informal nickname that almost stuck and would have been worse than the Yankees, the statesmen, and the Aggies combined.
1: Worse than those?
0: We were very nearly the Connecticut Orange Men.
1: Boo! syracuse
0: during the 1920s uh as our football team got better some students agitated for a change to the school's colors because so many of our rivals including yale new hampshire and rhode island also had blue and white as their colors Uh, our football team in fact started wearing orange jerseys and there were repeated attempts to have a student referendum to vote on a color change the 1929 edition of the yearbook is even decorated with an orange cover and orange borders on the pages
1: do we know where the orange came from? It was just an arbitrary decision. It was an
0: arbitrary decision. They wanted to distinguish it from the blue and the white.
2: I remember seeing pictures of those uniforms. They looked kind of strange because they were all black and white. There was no color film.
1: Was Syracuse orange then?
0: That's a good question. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. We
1: probably weren't in a rivalry. At we the probably time. were not in a rivalry with Syracuse. It was a rivalry that we owned on social media. That's right. A few years not ago.
0: much of a rivalry on social media. Won't um, say who started it, though. <laughs> Fortunately, we only had to wait uh, five years for the arrival of Jonathan in the dawn of the Husky era and and the color orange was banished forever from the uniforms of our teams.
1: not a very flattering color on most people. It's not.
0: It doesn't look that good. (laughs) And also it's connected. And that's
1: what it's all about when you're playing sports.
0: Also it's also the the orange men is also the, the colloquial name of a hate group in Ireland. Like it's just sort of it's just trouble. Trouble. It's trouble. We
1: don't want that. Huskies are much better. Who doesn't like
0: Huskies?
2: I can't.
1: If even you th- do not like Huskies, I don't want to know you.
0: I can't even think of anything orange that I own. That's a good one. That's a good point. I don't think I have any orange clothing.
1: I actually have something to promote.
0: Yes. Julie, promote.
1: I will. Yukon um, Magazine is online now, and it is hitting your mailboxes very soon when you... Hear this! <laughs> oh, good job, Ken. Um, and I have the cover story this issue.
0: It's an excellent story. Thank
2: That's why you. you're promoting it.
1: That is why I'm promoting it. I'm very proud of it. Um,
2: Although I have a story in there too.
1: Ken always has a story in there. He's very prolific. It's um, it's a great story about what some researchers here are doing to help uh, Cambodian refugees who suffered during the Khmer Rouge, which we have talked about a few times, coincidentally, on this podcast. Um, it's it's incredible. Check it out.
0: It's very good. Thank you. Uh, I o- didn't
1: mean the story was. I mean the story.
0: The story is very. I didn't good. mean
1: my writing was incredible. Yeah, I is. meant the story is. Right? About Why not? Incredible thing.
0: But it is. It's very good writing. <laughs> Thank you. Ken has a piece in it. I also have.
1: <gasps> you a, do have another big feature. I
0: do have a feature. It's a photo feature. It is. It's, it's about hidden Yukon.
1: He did not take the
2: photos.
0: I did right? not take the photos. Although but, I did see some of them being taken myself. I was present. <laughs> and so it's it's sort of, it's like a quiz, just like uh, to test your knowledge of all the obscure corners of Yukon. <laughs> and I will say that. They just took the photos, assuming I would know what all of them were. <laughs> and they sent me the... And there were a few, and I was like, I don't know what this is. It's like somebody's holding, like, antlers somewhere. I'm like, I don't... This That's is pretty funny. I thought you ritual. were...
1: I thought it came the other...
0: No, 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 no. Put the
1: horse before the cart no,
0: there No, I knew a few of them, but I did, there were some I had to make some phone calls.
1: <laughs> good thing you're a good researcher. That's right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Ken, what's new uh, in your world? Well, my story is about Michael Bradford.
1: Oh, I love that story, too.
0: Very good. Head of the
2: dramatic arts department, who has a very interesting backstory to how mm-hmm. he became uh, a playwright, which mm-hmm. was not what his intention was when he decided to go to school. Good teaser. But in the meantime, I can be found at 91.7 WHUS, Yukon Sound Alternative, streaming online at WHUS.org on Mondays from four thirty to 7 p.m.
1: And I'm at Julie Bartuka and at Yukon Podcast.
0: I'm at TJ Reen and at UConn Podcast. And uh, thank you for joining us this week. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, um, get a tattoo. If you get a tattoo with our logo or something, we will I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll I think de-
1: we've done this one before, Tom. We'll definitely
0: name you on the air.
2: Because this is radio, you can't see us. Yeah.
0: We'll definitely mention you on the oh, air. Oh, that's a big prize. If you get, if you get a tattoo. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for listening.